morning, everyone. It is great to be together. Not just good, but great. It's a great day. We are in the book of Acts. You can begin making your way there, please. We're in Acts chapter 4. I'll remind you also, we have a small group prayer meeting tonight here in the building. Uh, 6.15, I think. 6.30? Come at 6.15. You can't be late if you come early, so there you go. Um, But that'll be right here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for the freedoms uh, in our nation. Lord, to be able to uh, proclaim your name. Lord, we thank you for your word that we can sit under and receive from you. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who teaches us, guides us in all truth. Lord, we thank you for the fellowship of the saints that we enjoy, the like-minded, like-heartedness, Lord, that you are developing within us and have created within us. Lord, to be able to celebrate that and enjoy that one with the other. So, Lord, you've been good to us in uh, a myriad of ways, and uh, we rejoice in that. We're thankful for that. And we pray pray now that as we dig into your word, Lord, uh, you would use it to speak to the unique circumstances we're facing this day, this week that's ahead of us. And, Lord, as you've promised, that you've uh, blessed your word as it goes forth. Lord, we pray that it would bear much fruit. And we pray this prayer and every prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Acts chapter 4. We've already started. Last time we were together, we looked at verses 1 through 12. And so today we're going to pick up with that account. We're actually not going to quite finish uh, chapter 4 today. We still have some things that we need to go back and look at. But Acts chapter 4 is a continuation of Acts chapter 3, as you would imagine. Uh, follows on the heels of it. And in Acts chapter 3, that is the account, I'll remind you, that is the account that we have of this lame man, this man that was born from birth, unable to walk, who daily was laid at the temple mount area, the gate there of the temple, so that he could beg alms or ask alms of those that would come in and would come out. And that was his practice. He would do so on a daily basis. Everyone recognized him. He probably did pretty well there, Um, people feeling especially generous and, and giving. And the scripture has told us, we saw this in chapter 3, that on that particular day, on one particular day, as Peter and John, as was their custom, went into the temple to worship the Lord for the afternoon prayers, that something moved within them. God's Holy Spirit moved within them. And on that particular day, they stopped, they directed their attention to this man, they asked this man to direct their attention to him, and in the name of Jesus Christ, they told him to get up, to rise, and to walk. Well, you can imagine, 40 years in that particular condition, the excitement, one week in that particular condition, but the excitement on this man's part. And he went into the temple with Peter and John. He began to praise the Lord. He was leaping, it says. Uh, That word, again, is like an oil geyser gushing forth. This fellow, he was excited about it. You can imagine the commotion that that created. People, what is going on? What's the noise over there? Let's go over and see. Isn't that the fellow? That's the guy that sat at the the temple gates every day for the last 40 years. How is he well? And Peter, we saw, saw that as an opportunity, an opportunity to point people to Jesus Christ, not to point people to Peter, not to point people to John, not to point people to the apostles or anything like that, but to point people to, to Jesus Christ. And he would go on and he would explain how this man is standing here now 
because of the resurrected Christ. Well, I pointed out, and this is where we got to in our last study, there were some folks that were quite excited about Peter's message. What a great message. That was so good. I felt so alive when you were sharing that. I learned so much. Thank you so much. But there were also some people that thought, I don't like you. I don't like this message that you have. And they actually arrested Peter and John, put them in jail, brought them before the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin was the closest equivalent would be either our Congress or our Supreme Court. And they brought this, these two men before their Supreme Court, and they tried them. What are you doing? Who gave you the authority to do it? Um, where's this power come from to heal this man? All those types of questions came upon our friends here, Peter and John. Now, that was an intimidating place for them to be. Remember, the Sanhedrin had the power to essentially put someone to death. Now, of course, the Romans alone had that power, but if the Sanhedrin really wanted it, they could push the Romans enough, and they could get a person executed, which is what they did with Jesus. You remember even Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler, didn't want to put Jesus to death. I'll just beat him a bit. I'll teach him a lesson. I'll remind him, you know, don't mess with those folks because it's going to be trouble for you, but then I'm going to let him go. And the response of the Sanhedrin was, well, then you're no friend of Caesar's. We have connections. We can... We can call Caesar up and let him know that you don't, you're not his pal. This guy is calling himself to be a king. And so finally, Pontius Pilate said, all right, just put him to death. And that's how they killed Jesus. It's the same group that Peter and John are now standing in front. This is about two months later. And so this is a very serious situation that Peter and John find themselves in. These people could kill them by the end of the day. And yet we notice Peter and John, they're not dissuaded in any way, boldly proclaiming who Jesus is, boldly proclaiming that the Sanhedrin, those religious leaders, you're the one who put him to death, but God wouldn't let him remain dead. God raised him back up. You recall they said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. A promise from the Old Testament Psalm, Psalm 110, a messianic promise. They said, Jesus is the Messiah. You rejected him, but God has not rejected him. And it's by this Messiah whom you rejected that this man is standing in front of you. Well, that was the last four weeks of studies in about three minutes. I hope that was a helpful reminder to you. We pick up, starting in verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. I really enjoy that verse. They were uneducated and common men. I'm an uneducated common man. Most of us in this room were uneducated common individuals, uneducated in the official schools that you have to go to in order to be authorized to do what it is you feel that God wants you to do. What's that? The expensive way, absolutely. And yet, God uses uneducated and common men. That's the hope of our church, because um, that's kind of the, the thing we're going with um, here. Uneducated, common individuals. And so they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Now, Peter and John, they were common fishermen. Fishermen in that day were, it was like a classic blue-collar type of job. You didn't, 
people did it up in the Galilee region. You didn't go to a lot of education for that particular thing. Your education was how to be a good fisherman. That was your particular education. The Sanhedrin were the highest of the high. The, the most elite schools that they could find, as much education as they could get, as many degrees as they could throw after their particular name. And here's Peter and John standing in front of these people, highly educated, super well-dressed, some regular old fishermen standing there. And again, remember, they were the people that could put Peter and John to death. So it was a very intimidating situation, but Peter and John, they weren't intimidated at all here. It says that in verse 13, that this crowd, these people, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Here are Peter and John delivering a Bible study to the religious leaders of the day. You remember they, they broke down what Psalm 110 meant to these religious leaders, and they were explaining it to them. Now, of course, Peter and John, they weren't as uneducated as these, this Sanhedrin thought that they were. They had just spent three and a half years in an intensive uh, program, mentor-type program with the Lord Jesus. And Jesus would take them, he'd walk with them, he'd stop, and he'd teach them, he'd explain them. So these guys had education, they had training, they just didn't have the education and training of the Sanhedrin's schools. They didn't go there for those particular things. They didn't have the official education. They, had, they were criticized the same way that Jesus was. This is what they said of Jesus back in John chapter 7. It said, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? That's what they said of Jesus. That's what they're now saying of Peter and John. And so they hadn't studied with the scholars, and yet they demonstrated themselves to be even more proficient with the scriptures than those scholars. Now, I certainly don't want to give an impression today that I think that education is bad, that I, I think you, you shouldn't go off to this school or you shouldn't go to that school. I think there's a place for that. I think those things really stretch the mind and really force you to be on task as you do your learning and, and that sort of thing. But if you believe, well, I went to the schools, now I'm qualified, I don't think that's what the scripture uh, demonstrates. I think a person with their Bible, pouring over their Bible, prayerfully seeking to understand, digging into other sources that are out there where other people are teaching the scriptures as well, I think that person could be even more qualified. Not necessarily, but possibly. Could be even more qualified. It's not where, that you have a whole bunch of degrees necessarily that qualifies you. Here's Peter and John. They had been with Jesus. And because they had, they could break down the scriptures even for these learned individuals uneducated, common individuals. Many times, I think we disqualify ourselves. And so we, we get into a particular situation and there's somebody that has all the degrees or they have all of the learning or they're a doctor of this or, or that and we get intimidated. We think, well, I, I can't talk to them necessarily. Have you been with Jesus? Do you know what your scripture says? Can you speak the truth of scripture and trust that God's Holy Spirit will do what God, God's Holy Spirit does? The answer is yes. You don't have to be disqualified. You don't have to feel intimidated to present the truth to anybody, highest of educated or the lowliest of, lowest of education. The supreme credential for Peter and John and for you is that you've spent time with Jesus. That's the supreme creden credential. 
These guys, it says here in verse 13, the end of it, they had been with Jesus. And the Sanhedrin is struck by their boldness, the boldness of Peter and John. And it causes them to call to mind they're just like that Jesus fellow was. Now, Jesus was a common individual. He was an uneducated individual, at least formally, just like Peter and John are. And so this Sanhedrin is reminded these guys are responding and acting just as Jesus did. They spoke the words. Remember, the teachers of that day, they had a tendency. Nobody wanted to put themselves out there. Nobody wanted to get out there and say, this is what the text means. And so what they would do is they would say, well, Rabbi Smith says this is what the text means. And then if it turns out they were proved wrong, they'll say, I knew that Rabbi Smith was an idiot. And they could blame it on Rabbi Smith. But Jesus spoke boldly. You have heard that it's been said, but I say unto you, this is what it means. That's what Peter and John are doing. This is the stone that the builders have rejected. And he has become the chief cornerstone. They spoke boldly just as the Lord Jesus did. And it causes them to call to mind the Lord. In addition, I think it also causes them to call the tone and the tenor and the heart of the Lord. These guys remind them of Jesus. They're not getting in there. They're not screaming at them. They're not yelling at them. They're not calling them all kinds of names. They're speaking truth, no doubt respectfully, and that reminds them of the Lord. I hope when you communicate with other people, even if other people disagree with you, they walk away thinking, you know, that's a nice guy. Idiot, but a nice guy. She's a nice lady. I don't agree with her, but she's kind to me, respectful to me. That's how Jesus treated people. I hope you do as well. When you're done talking to people, does it leave them thinking, you know, here's a guy that's been with Jesus. It reminds me a lot of Jesus. Now, that, force, that raises another question. Have you been with Jesus? Have you spent some time with him? You know what would be a good thing for, I think, all of us to do, you guys to do? I, I don't want to do it. But you guys do it. We should all do it. Why don't you take a little daily log of how you spend your time? How much time do you watch the news? How much time do you watch those particular channels you know, on the news? How much time are you reading other things than the scriptures? How much time do you spend with Jesus on a daily basis? Well, I have this little book, and I read it. It takes me about four minutes, and then I put it away, and I'm good for the day. You think? I have found myself, as I, I, watch, I watch a lot of news things, I enjoy that, that's what I like to do, until my wife says, okay, enough news, and then we turn it off. Um, but, you know, I watch particular news. I find I begin to develop the attitude of the people I'm looking at. I like them. I like what they have to say but I become like them. You know who I want to be like? Sunday school? Answer. Jesus. That's who I want to be like, and so I need to spend time with him. Do you spend time with the Lord? And do people think of the Lord after they have spent time with you? I hope they do. Verse 13 goes on. As I said, they recognize that they had been with Jesus. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Now, in addition, the Sanhedrin believed you had to go to the right schools so you knew the right things to teach, but they also believed the only ones who had the authority to teach were those who went to the right schools. So Peter and John shouldn't have been standing at all 
and shouldn't have been teaching some kind of a Bible study at all. And yet, here they are, they're doing that. Now, they could have been criticized. They, they would have been criticized. Well, what do you know? Where did you go to school? What's your degree? Uh, and all that sort of stuff. But part of the authenticity of what it was they were saying was the fact that standing beside them was the man who had previously been lame from birth, but was now, notice, standing beside them. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He could have said, and with them was the man you know, who was healed. Luke seems to go out of his way to say, and standing with them was the man who had been healed. And so here are these uh, religious leaders. Don't listen to these men. They don't know what they're talking about. We don't know where they're from or what their authority is behind them. And yet standing with them was the man from the outside looking in that they healed. Of course, we know it was Jesus that healed this man. There was no denying that a miracle had taken place. It's pretty hard to argue with a life that is transformed, isn't it? Pretty hard to argue with that. And so someone looks at your life, maybe you haven't seen them, and this happens a lot, you haven't seen a person for four or five years, maybe you go to your high school reunion, I've had that uh, happen, and people come and they start talking to you and they're like, hey, you're actually a pretty nice guy, you're not the guy I remember when you were 17. And they begin to see a change that maybe other people that see you daily don't. Your life is different. It's hard to argue with a life that has been transformed. What's different about you? Well, let me ex explain to you. About five years ago, a friend invited me to a Bible study, and I began to look into the Word. I began to read the Bible for myself, and I began to try to apply the things that God has for me there in the Scripture. And God began to change my heart where I wanted to know the Lord. I wanted to be in right relationship with the Lord. And from that point on, everything has been different in my life. And people are like, you know, I see that. I can observe that. People are drawn to that. I remember my wife and I, we went to a reunion. We ran into a, uh, a, a kid that we graduated with. And now he was in the FBI, I think he was in. Something like that. You don't even know the story. Um, he was in some law enforcement thing. And part of his jo job was to interrogate people and to kind of pull out the lies. And so he was interrogating us in a nice way, just talking with us. And he later told a friend of mine, he said, you know, whatever happened in this guy's life is real. Something real has happened in his life. That was the greatest compliment I think I could ever receive, that my faith is real. That's what I want people to be able to see and to know. It's hard to argue with a life that has been transformed. And so tell others about the Lord, but model the Lord as well. Let people look to you look at you and think of Jesus. It's hard to argue with a transformed life. We go on to verse 15. It says, now, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, in the name of Jesus. So we see these leaders. They don't know what to do. Peter, John, no authority to be saying what they're saying, and yet they were able to heal this guy in some particular way. All of the people are excited.
you guys faked it. Um, you know, this guy, he could walk all along. There's no denying that the miracle. That's the first thing that never happens in this scenario. scenario. The second thing is there's no attempt on the part. Remember what Peter said? Peter said to them, this man is standing here because of the resurrected Jesus Christ. The whole crux of Peter's argument as to how this man could have been healed is that the risen Jesus Christ raised this man to his feet, that the risen Jesus Christ has healed them. So if the resurrection was false, and if the Sanhedrin could have disproved it, this would have been the time to do so. This would have been a time for them to say, you know, you mentioned the resurrection. You know that's been disproven, don't you? We know where Jesus' body is. We know the whole thing is a fraud. And yet they never do that either. They can't argue with the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection. So the first thing is the Sanhedrin never denies the miracle. The second thing is they never deny or disprove the resurrection. And again, if this was the time to do this, if they were going to do so, this is the time to do so. And then the last thing that we see the Sanhedrin never does during this interaction is they never contemplate the idea of maybe Peter and John are right, of responding positively to what Peter and John have said. Publicly, privately, they never acknowledge what Peter and John are communicating. Never say something like, you know, maybe these two men are right. Maybe we are wrong about Jesus. Now here's an interesting question to me. You be the judge for yourselves. How does Luke know what they talked about in their private conference. Remember, they pulled away from the crowd, they went into a back room or whatever it might be, and there they began to discuss what they should do with Peter and John. How does Luke know about that? Well, I think the only way that Luke can know about that is if one of the men that was in that conference later told him about that. Could it be that one or more members of the Sanhedrin came to know Jesus Christ a little bit after this meeting? Well, here's one thing that we know for certain. We know that at least one of the members of the Sanhedrin did come to know Christ. Was he there at that particular meeting on that particular day? That I don't know. But we do know that at least one member of the Sanhedrin did come to know Jesus Christ later on. And that was a rabbi, a pharisaical rabbi by the name of Saul. You know him more as Paul, who wrote just about half of our New Testament. The Sanhedrin that was so opposed to Jesus, the Sanhedrin that was so opposed to Peter and John, that threatened them and warned them, don't say another word about this Jesus anymore, God changed at least one of those men's life, or those men's life. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? Because that's a reminder to us that no one is outside of the reach of God's grace, not even a hardened religious leader. No doubt you know people in your life, and if you've been a believer for a while, you've probably tried to share your faith with other people, and that's good, and you should. And there are some folks that are, seem to be receptive, and there's others, man, oh, they can't stand it. They don't want to hear it. Their heart is hardened toward it. Maybe they even mock it, and yet God can change lives. Remember Paul, Saul, persecuted the church, went out of his way to find people that named the name of Christ, that he might stop them and even put them to death. And yet God changed his heart. Here's Peter and John standing in front of a group of people, and when all is said and done, it doesn't really look like they impacted that group of people. 
And yet God was working in the hearts of those people, at, at the very least one of those people. A little bit later on in the book of Acts, when Paul would come to know the Lord, the Lord speaks to him, and he says to him, Paul, and he says, Saul, Saul, what are you doing? And then he says to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was that little prick. It was a little stick. It was designed to keep the animal on the path where it was supposed to go, and the animal's wandering, so you, like a spur, like on a cowboy and a, the horse, whatever. You just give him a little prick, get him back to where he needs to. That little prick that is talking about there, sound, or that little pricking that would take place there was God's Holy Spirit stirring Paul, working in Paul. You know these things are true. You know they don't disagree and contradict the scriptures, Paul. You know the scriptures. And that would just go on in Paul's mind and go on and go on and go on until eventually Paul came to the place of faith. Even if people don't respond to what it is you share with them, be faithful and boldly proclaim the truth. Because God's word, the scripture says, does not come back void. It does what it was designed to do, one way or the other. Be faithful. Faithfully communicate the word in word and in deed. Verse 16, or excuse me, verse 18 goes on. It says, so they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So the conference is over. Uh, the, the meeting closed door session is over. They come back. They bring Peter and John in front of them and they say to them, do not speak or do not teach at all about this Jesus. That's their solution. And there's a not-so-veiled threat there as well. Don't do this, because if you do, you know what's going to happen to you. Now, to teach refers to public proclamation of this message. Certainly don't come into this temple anymore and go sit up there on one of the porches that are on the side that's covered a bit out of the sun where people can gather around you and you could teach them. Certainly don't do that. The word speak there refers to more like a one-on-one -on -one dialogue. So they're explaining to them, we don't want you to come and set up shop and teach. We don't even want you to one-on-one -on -one talk to people about this Jesus. Don't mention his name again or something bad is going to happen to you. We don't want to hear of you telling anybody anything at any time about Jesus. And with that, the leaders are prepared to let Peter and John go. Now, many of us, if we were Peter and John, what would you do? See ya. You'd get out of there, wouldn't you? Let's get out of here before they change their mind and they do something worse to us. Interesting thing about Peter and John, I said this the last time we were together, Peter and John were on trial, but if you read the account, it almost seems like the Sanhedrin was on trial before Peter and John. And so Peter and John, now they say, you guys can go. Don't do any of this anymore, and you guys can get out of here. But Peter and John says, well, we're not done. We still have more that we want to say to you. We want to talk to you. And so they respond in verse 19. Peter and John answered them, look, man, that's Greg's version. They said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, that's something you're going to need to judge for yourself. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. So Peter and John, they could get out of there. And come think about it. They could do whatever they want once they got out of there, right? Deal with the consequences later. But Peter and John don't want to leave this setting without it being very clear that we don't agree to this restriction that you're about to bring upon us, and we're not going to go forth from here 
agreeing with this restriction. Not because we're jerks, not because we don't like anybody telling us what to do, but because God has already given us an instruction. And we have the choice right now, as Peter's going to say in chapter 5, we could either obey God or we could obey you. And as we see here, he says, you judge for yourselves whether it is right for us to do this or not to do this. There's no deliberation. There's no time for Peter and John to kind of pull off to the side. What do you think we should do? Should we do this or shouldn't we? Should we listen to them? Or what do you think? None of that. They instinctively know that they need to obey the Lord more so than obey this particular man. And notice this also in verse uh, 19. Peter makes the point. Peter and John, both of them, it says, are speaking. So one of them makes this particular point. He says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. So what Peter is saying there is, Peter and John, they're acknowledging the authority of the Sanhedrin to make this kind of law, if that's the law that they want to make. They're, they're acknowledging, you're the judge. You guys can make these particular laws. They're acknowledging the power of the Sanhedrin to determine if Peter and John broke the law and what the penalty should be. You, you're going to have to decide. You're going to have to judge. And they're acknowledging that the Sanhedrin will have the power to punish them if they break that particular law. All of these things. So Peter and John are acknowledging the authority of this group that is in front of them, fully aware that there will likely be a penalty if they break this law, this ordinance that this authority has just put before them. But what Peter and John also know is that there will be a penalty if they break God's law. There'll be a consequence if they break God's law as well. And so again, as it says in Acts 5.29, Peter says, we must obey God rather than man. Now let me just say a couple of points real quickly. Excuse me one second. We know, and when I say that, because the Bible teaches this. We've taught about this. We've spent some time in the scriptures looking at these things. We know that as believers that it is ours to be good citizens and subjects to the governing, subject to the governing authority. Let me rephrase that. We're not subjects, uh, in America especially. But we are to be subject to the governing authorities of our land that God has placed over us. And so in my opinion, Christians should be the best citizens of a country, of a community. Christians should be the very best citizens, the ones that cause the least amount of hassle for our officials that uh, rule over us or govern over us. Paul said this. This is from the book of Romans. He said, starting in verse 1 of chapter 13, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers... Hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Paul's understanding. Paul would go on in another place. And this time, uh, in a letter written to one of the men that he was mentoring, a pastor of a community that he was mentoring, he said this, and remind them, those that you're leading, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, 
to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I said that first line again, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Even Peter, the, the guy that is just said, I can't obey you guys, I can't obey your authority here on this issue, even Peter would later write these words, be subject for the Lord's sake to every humanist institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So sort of the default for you and I as Christians is that we will obey the governing authorities of our society. That's our default. However, there comes a time when to obey the governing authorities is to disobey our heavenly authority. And according to Peter and John, this is one of those instances. And so, were the American founders, the majority of whom were devoted believers in Jesus Christ, were they wrong when they declared their independence from what authority in order that they might establish anew? Were African American men and women, were they wrong when they defied the authorities of their day and sat at segregated lunch counters or on certain parts of municipal buses, were they wrong? Is the preacher in Canada today wrong for teaching what the Bible declares about homosexuality, which is a crime in that country if it goes out over the airwaves of that country? Is that preacher wrong? Should that preacher tear out those pages in their Bible? Are churches during these days of COVID wrong for meeting in person when such meetings have been declared illegal by some of our state's governors? You see, there comes a time where in order to obey the governing authorities, we need to disobey the Lord. We must obey God rather than men. And that's something here at Calvary, this particular Calvary, we've been trying to navigate. There have been all kinds of restrictions over this last year. Emergency restrictions because of COVID and you know, the medical needs and all those kinds of stuff. And we're trying to navigate this particular situation. And there are other churches that are out there, there are other Calvary chapels that have done it very differently. Some have taken a stand. I'm, not, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Nobody's gonna tell me what I'm gonna do. Others haven't been meeting at all. And they put everything out online and, and things like that. We're trying to kind of navigate this here in the middle. And there have been instances where we have done things that other churches probably thought we were crazy for doing in the, in the sense of we've self-restricted. We've tried to obey the authorities of our land. There have been other instances where we as a church have said to the governing authorities, you know, I think you're going too far on this particular issue. Let me give you an example. In May or June or something like that, the, um, I don't want to use the word decree because it sounds like I'm trying to, you know, I'm not, I'm trying to be respectful here. The, the, or, the edict, uh, that's another bad word. Uh, the executive order, I think that's what it, the proper name is. The executive order went forth that uh, you could go to the beach, you could sit on the beach six feet away from one another, but churches weren't allowed to meet, and if they did, they had to be in a car with their windows up, and there had to be six feet feet from one car to the other but you could sit on a beach and you know look out well that bothered us that seemed problematic to us it didn't seem fair and it, it seemed to be a violation of our first amendment freedom as a church 
You may not necessarily agree with all that. You probably do in the room. Some of you that are sitting at home may not necessarily agree with that. And so we wrote a letter uh, to the governor, and we participated in a letter to the governor. We said, that doesn't make sense. That is not appropriate. You're treating different citizens different ways because, as, we said, as he said, you know, the shore is where memories are made. Yeah, well, God works in people's hearts when they gather in a church. And if you can gather in a, on a beach, you can gather in a park six feet apart and hear the word of God go forth. And so we actually participated in a lawsuit against the governor. And the reason why we did so is because there were multiple letters that were sent and they went unresponded to, ignored. And we felt that was all right. I eventually wrote a letter uh, to the chief of police and I said, please be aware. Look, I'm about to be named the chaplain of the Ewing Township chief police. I like the police. I appreciate the police. I want to serve the police. But we wrote a letter to them because they're the ones who are going to have to come out and arrest us. And we wrote a letter to them explaining at that particular point in time our thinking. The chief of police at the time, a new fellow now, but the one at the time called us back and we talked it through and I explained where we're coming from and he told us how they would respond. And potentially there would be consequences for doing so. There weren't. And he was pretty fun. It's a fun story I'll tell you another day uh, about it. All right, but there comes a time where we may have to disobey the authorities. COVID has proven to be a pretty unique example of that in, in the day and age in which we live. You know, a year and a half ago, would this have ever come up in a sermon? You know, this sort of thing? No, not at all. You know, it's amazing that scripture passage that talks about um, some eat meat sacrificed to idols and, and others don't. Well, that was just sort of this, like, ethereal idea before. Now it comes right down to it. Do I wear a mask or don't I? And you want to wear one, but I don't want to wear one. Do I wear one to, to make you feel more comfortable while I'm in your prayer? You know, these things, the scripture applies to these things. And we take them into account as we seek to be uh, honoring to the Lord and even honoring to the governing authorities um, that have been placed over us. So let me just say this. Our default response uh, should be one of honoring and obeying the government. Government. But there does come a time, and many in America feel that that time is increasingly happening and are encroaching, where we need to take a stand. For Peter and John, this is one of those instances. Again, in verse uh, 20, they say, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Some versions will say it this way. It's interesting. It'll say, we can't help but speak of what we have seen and we've heard. It just comes out. I have to say it. Jesus Christ changed my life, and I need others to hear that. Verse 21, now when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So seeing that they're not getting anywhere, seeing that they're actually losing ground, the Sanhedrin decides, look, they threaten them, and then they say, get out of here, just leave. Notice, a sad thing about these religious leaders. The religious leaders were completely unmoved by the miracle, and yet here they seem to be swayed by public opinion. Public opinion, what are people going to think if we let them continue to talk? That moved them, but not the miracle of God. What a sad way, what a sad way to live life where you're just worried about what other people are going to think and say. And your determination is based on what are other people going to, how are they going to respond? 
There's a place of truth where you can build your life upon a foundation, a rock-solid foundation that won't falter. And that's the truth of God's word. These religious leaders, they miss it. I want you to notice one other thing before we move on from here. Notice the crowd here. Again, verse 21 says, And when they had further threatened them, they, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Notice, the people were praising God. They weren't praising Peter. They weren't praising John. John, But they were praising the Lord. Because all throughout what we have seen the last few weeks, what Peter did was pointed people to the Lord. He didn't point people to himself. He didn't draw attention to himself. He pointed people to Jesus. He didn't even draw attention to his ministry. People do that. Preachers, religious leaders, they draw attention to themselves. Or maybe if they're a little more noble, they draw attention to the ministry that they're a part of. We don't want to be about Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. We want to be about the Lord. We want to be a place where people know that they can come and learn about the Lord and grow in their relationship with the Lord. That's what we want to be about here. That's the example that we see with our friends Peter and John here. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said this, Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good deeds, your good works, and give glory to your Father in heaven. How easily that could say and give you glory and seem appropriate. Your good works, you should be the one getting the pats on the back, but that's not what Jesus taught us that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's exactly what's going on here with Peter and John. They're pretty solid. It kind of goes without saying. Um, verse 23. I'm going to read this section, but we're only going to talk about a portion of it today. It says, Now when they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly, verse 27, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So Peter and John, they rush back to their friends to tell them all the good news. We were put in jail last night. That's good news? We got to stand before the Supreme Court, and it was really scary. That's the good news? They, they're excited to go back to their friends to explain to them, we had the opportunity to tell others about Jesus. And not just others, we had the opportunity to stand before the religious leaders of our nation and tell them about Jesus. When are we ever going to get that opportunity again? 
And yet God opened the door for that particular opportunity. You'll notice this, though. Not once in this section that I just finished reading, not once do Peter and John or the others, their friends that they're talking to, not once is the impression that they thought about obeying the authorities ever communicated. So not once are the friends like, well, wait a minute, what are they saying? Well, then we, this, we should really be careful. We should, none of that. Rather, what do they pray for? They don't pray, they don't pray that they should escape the persecution. They pray for boldness to continue to do that which brought about the persecution. The very thing that got them in trouble, they asked the Lord to grant them the boldness to keep doing. These Christians, they'll actually go on to make three specific requests in this prayer. And I'm going to skim a little. We're going to go back next week and look at some of the other things that we discover in this section. The first thing is in verse 29, they say, Lord, look upon their threats. That is to say this, they don't dictate to the Lord what he must do and how he must do it. They don't presume to dictate to God how to punish those wicked men or to get them out of power so that they won't have these kinds of problems anymore or come up with a plan that God, they're going to present to God for him to follow. Rather, they just simply unload their burden and they leave the matter to the Lord. Lord, look upon their threats. Secondly, we see also in verse 29 they seek the Lord to grant them the boldness to continue to do that which they were doing. And so we see there, it says, grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So their personal security and safety is not these first century disciples' primary concern. The important thing to them was that the word continued to go forth and that they would be courageous enough to continue preaching that word. That's the important thing to them. Notice also, and I think this is an important one, maybe just particularly for men or manly men. Notice this. They don't pretend to possess a courage in and of themselves. So they're not tough. I'm a little bit of a bigger guy. And I can get into circumstances where with my girth, I can intimidate somebody else. And I know, I find in myself, if that's what gives me my confidence in a, in a challenging circumstance, well, then I'm in the flesh. Because it's not about my physique, as glorious as it is. <laughs> it's not about that at all. The courage that these men are seeking, this little church group here, men and women, are seeking is the boldness of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to cause them to be effective. And so they pray for courage because they know that they're going to, they might struggle to have the courage and that they would fall. They don't pretend that they can face this circumstance in and of themselves. So wise of them. So that's the second thing. They pray for courage. And then the third thing we see them asking God that he might stretch out his hand to heal. Because that's where this whole thing started from. They they. God used them to do a mighty sign in this man's life. It drew people to themselves. They spoke the truth. Jesus is the one who raised this man. And so they pray that God would stretch out his hand to heal. We might say that a different way, that he would continue to confirm his word through their ministry in the lives of the people they minister to. 
In our context, we might say that as the word continues to go forth and as the ministry continues to go forth, that people would be growing, that others would look at their lives and say, man, you've been different. You are different. What's going on? That our ministry would continue to be effective and God would confirm our ministry through the miracle of changed lives. So think back. Those are three really good things to pray. These are things you could be praying for yourself. These are things you could be praying for your church, for that small group of believers that you're really close with and friends with and really seeking to minister uh, life with one another. Here's things you could be praying for them. Parents, for your children. Number one, that God's will would be done in their lives. That's the first thing they prayed for. Number two, that they would continue to have the courage to obey God as they should. And then number three, that God would confirm his hand upon their ministry by impacting the lives of those they come in contact with. That God's will would be done, that they would have the courage to obey the Lord in what he called them to do, and that God would confirm his hand upon their ministry by impacting the lives of those they're seeking to minister to. Wouldn't that be great if that's what people said was going on here at Calvary or what they said was going on in your particular family or your friend group, your close friend group, if those things were happening? Well, let's pray those things. Let's collectively as a group pray those things over our lives, that God's will would be done in those particular areas. Well, the final verse, verse 31 It says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God evidences the fact that he heard their prayer by physically expressing that, physically demonstrating that. It says the place in which they prayed was shaken, and then they were all filled, it says there, with the Holy Spirit. Not the first time that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The thing that they had asked God to do, not shake the building. Lord, give us boldness. That's what God did. Notice it says in verse 31, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, not the first time. We might say they were filled with the Holy Spirit again. For Peter, this is the third time in the first four chapters that he was filled with the Holy Spirit for a task that was in front of him, that he might perform or do faithfully that particular task. In his instance, it was often speaking to others the truth of the gospel. The filling of the Holy Spirit is not something meant to happen once in our life and be done with. One Pentecost-type experience, and then we're done with it. But the, the book of Acts is going to demonstrate, and Paul will say, be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians. It's something that is continually happening in our lives where God's Holy Spirit empowers us, fills us, pushes us out of the equation and fills the container that he might work through us. Something that was continually happening here. We need, on a daily basis, a fresh empowering of God for the tasks that he has for us. What's the task that he has for you? For some of you, There is someone in your life you need to forgive. And it's hard for you to forgive that person. And you struggle with forgiving that person. You need a fresh empowering of God's Holy Spirit for the task that is before you to forgive that person. 
Some of us here, we need to open our mouth and to speak the truth of the gospel into somebody else's life. But we're intimidated, we're embarrassed, we don't feel qualified, or whatever it might be. Maybe there are threats if we do so. They won't be your friend anymore. They won't be interested in talking to you. They'll mock you in some setting. You need a fresh empowering of the Holy Spirit for the task that God has called you to do. Some of you are having difficulty loving those sacrificially that God has called you to love. Husbands, love your wives and lay down your life for her as Christ loved the church. Well, that was easy first three weeks of marriage, month of marriage, couple of years of marriage, but time goes on, and what, am I going to do this the next 50 years of my life? That's what God has called you to. And what God calls us to, he enables us to do. The commandments of God are the enablements of God, it's been said. And so, brother, husband, you need a fresh filling of God's Holy Spirit, a fresh empowering of God's Holy Spirit to do what he has called you to do. So take some time, each of us, look into your life. What is that difficult task, that thing that seems impossible, that God is calling you to do as a follower of Christ? And go to the Lord for a fresh empowering. He promises us that. Would you agree, friends? You, you have not because you ask not. He promises he'll give us his Holy Spirit and enable us to do what he has called us to do. We need to rely on that enablement. Amen? All right, let's stop there. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, it's remarkable for us to consider... that each one of us now collectively but individually come into, can come into your presence, can commune with you, can hear the voice of your Holy Spirit uniquely speaking into each one of our hearts. As Alan Redpath used to say, do business with us. And so, Father, I pray for each one of us in this room. And I pray that even in this, this moment of time, Lord, that you would speak into a, the deep places of our hearts. You know where we're at. You know what we're dealing with. You know what we need your empowering to move forward faithfully in. And Father, I pray that you would be gracious to pour out your Holy Spirit in a fresh way as we leave from here today to encounter that particular issue head on later today or tomorrow or in the coming days.